Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 84. We are continuing through our summer series in the books of Psalms. These are songs written to the church intended to be sung, and our 12-verse song this morning is a beautiful hymn of longing. Again, you see this theme throughout uh, the Psalms of, of just this expression of longing for the Lord. Why do we think we keep seeing this theme throughout the Psalms? Well, John Calvin would say it's because our hearts are like factories that produce idols, bringing longing for little g gods. And so the psalmist continually grabs our attention, grabs us by our shoulders, gives us a good shake by showing and demonstrating his desire, his love for God. So two weeks ago, Pastor AJ preached through Psalm 73, where we encountered God's goodness. Book three out of the five books of Psalms, book 73 launches book three, which begins with the words, truly God is good. And the rest of the Psalm boasted of God's goodness to his covenant people corporately, but also to the psalmist individually. Thus, the psalmist concluded that the good actions we can do is draw near to God. And he ends his psalm, as we looked at two weeks ago, A.J. preached through. He ends it by saying, for me, it is good to be near God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And then last week, Pastor Allen preached through Psalm 78, where we encountered God's strength and his faithfulness and his ability to save his people. The psalmist recounted the journey God had brought his people on from before they even were a people to delivering them out of slavery, preserving them through the desert wilderness and establishing them in the land with a king who, just as God had led his people as a shepherd does his sheep, the king would be a shepherd to God's people. The hopeful conclusion of that lengthy psalm was that there would be a shepherd king from David's line who with upright heart, would shepherd his people and guide them with his skillful hand. Psalm 84, our psalm this morning, opens with a beautiful declaration, a picture of the worshiper's deep longing for the presence of the Lord, and an indication of the struggle in their pilgrimage back to Zion, the place where God's presence dwelt. Psalm 84 is divided into three sections each containing a description of, of what a blessed life looks like. And it's, we, we kind of hijacked this word blessed a little bit in our culture over the past few years and, 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 and assigned it solely to monetary gain or to material wealth. This word blessed, when we encounter it in Scripture, means so much more than just material gain. This word blessed means a full or complete life, a life that is lacking nothing. So the three blessings that we will see in this psalm, the first one we see that a blessed or a full life is found by those who dwell in God's house. The second one we'll see is the blessed and full life is found by those whose strength is in God and whose heart is a highway to Zion. And the third blessing we'll see in this text is a description, the description of this blessed and full life is found by those who trust in God. What I hope we walk away from this, from our time today, uh, in this psalm, 
is that I hope that we see that in this psalm, it demonstrates that knowing God accurately leads to loving God intimately and trusting God completely, which produces a full life. And so we'll read through our text, Psalm 84, and then I'll come back and make some remarks. Psalm 84 is to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacha, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And so first we see in, in, in our theme of knowing God accurately leads to loving God intimately and trusting God completely, producing a full life. We see that first action, knowing God accurately. We see in verses one through four, an accurate understanding of who God is comes from being near God. The first blessing that we encounter, the first description of this full, blessed life is those who dwell in God's house, near to the Lord, gaining an accurate knowledge of who he is by drawing near to him, by being in his presence, by being amongst his people. The psalmist begins, how lovely is your dwelling place? And if you made it through the 90s, it's probably a trigger for some songs that were sung many times. Uh, over the years. But one thing that's interesting is this word lovely is less about the subject. Although the temple was lovely, the tabernacle was lovely, the time setting of this, of this psalm isn't, isn't fully known. Uh, but God's dwelling place was a lovely place, but it's, it's less about the subject uh, than it was about describing the attitude of the beholder. The temple was God's dwelling place, and because it, would, it was God's dwelling place, it was the most lovely place on earth to the psalmist. There was no place he wanted to be more, he desired to be more than there. Why? Not because of the temple mount or because of the tabernacle, not because of the building or the structure, because God was there. No place 
nor presence captured him, made him feel more alive, more truly human than being in God's presence. Charles Spurgeon, writing on this, says this, quote, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. I wonder, do we long for the presence of the Lord like this? In verse 2, the psalmist says, my soul longs, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And you see this, this triad, it represents the complete person. It's the eternal and the temporal, the internal and the external aspects of that person. What the psalmist is saying is every part of me, not just a category that I've relegated to religion or Sunday mornings or this attitude. The psalmist is saying every area of my life. I often wonder what that played out like for him. On those mornings, he woke up and just really didn't want to get out of bed. Or when he was facing those trials, I, I suspect that there were times he didn't feel this way. So it's not about a feeling or an emotional state. He is saying, Christ, you have all, God, you have all of me. And in times that I feel like pursuing you, I will run after you. In times that I don't feel it, I will run after you. For I know there's life nowhere else. This is a common theme through the Psalms as well as through Scripture, giving us examples in Scripture of those who have abandoned everything this world has to offer to, to run after God. Just a few examples. Psalm 27, verses 4 and 5 the psalmist writes, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that, I will, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Psalm 42, verse 1. We've seen this already in this series. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 43, 3, the very next psalm. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Lead me where? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. These songs were sung repetitively because as a psalmist or as the hymn writer says, our hearts are prone to wander. 
And so the people of Israel would continually remind, our, remind themselves, and we do well to remind ourselves as well, there is no greater, nothing greater than God. There is no greater love, no greater place than to be in the presence of the Lord. It is a longing that is both a decision as well as a desire. And it pushes us forward, away from the things that this world offers us, toward the living God. This is exampled in Psalm 84. In this song that was sung again and again to remind ourselves, there is no more lovely place. Nothing more should our hearts desire than to be near the Lord. Verse 3, the, psalm, the psalmist describes sparrow or a swallow finding her nest in the house of the Lord. And there's this picture that's, that's given here of, of the humble. An image of the sparrow represents the humble and the lowly. Jesus picked up on this imagery in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse, specifically verse 29, where Jesus, as he's teaching, says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, <clears throat> excuse me, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows, leaning back on this imagery from Psalm, the Psalms here, sparrows were seemingly worthless creatures. In Jesus' day, they were not even worth a penny. You got two sparrows for one penny. Like, it's a lowly creature. It doesn't have much value to the, to the operations of men. But the sovereign God of the universe, Jesus wants us to know, holds these sparrows and cares for them. And Jesus later in his teaching makes a point of the significance of human value. He says, if God's attention is on the sparrow, insignificant as it is to, human, to the affairs of humans, yet God accounts for every single one, not one of them is overlooked, are you not also in his hands and in his care? Are you not of greater value, O image bearer? But the imagery here in Psalm 84 is similar of that humble stature. These seemingly insignificant sparrows have found their home in God's home, in God's presence. They found their home in God. Similar to Jesus' implication in Matthew, the psalmist emphasizes so much more shall God's people find their home in God. So much more shall they desire to be near God's presence and approach God's presence with a view of themselves as lowly and a lofty view of God's glory. So we see that knowing God accurately, this being in God's presence, pursuing relationship with him, knowing who he is and what he does, it leads to loving God intimately, trusting God completely, which produces a full life. And so verses five through eight, we see an example of this love of God that's through the psalm, really, but we see that this accurate understanding of God by nearness to God, it leads to a deeper love for God, for his presence, and for his people. We encounter the second blessing in verse 5. The first blessing in verse 4 is that those who find full life are those who dwell in your house, ever praising your name. Their attention and their affections are on the Lord. And the second 
Description of a full or blessed life that we see is found in verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. There's this picture through this psalm of the people being sojourners on a journey away from the temple. There's this longing to be in God's presence, but they're not there. They're not where they want to be. And so the psalmist says that they walk through this valley. And the, the, the term valley of Baha, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was a place, uh, but it also represented something as well. Uh, it was known as a dry and waterless place. Uh, it was also known as a valley of weeping, uh, partly because Bacha is represented of the balsam trees, which only grew in dry and, and waterless areas. Uh, one scholar notes that the resin of these trees oozed out like tears on the side of the trunk. And, and additionally, the noun, this noun, Bacha, which is describing that place, is similar to the Hebrew verb, for weeping, and so there's some word imagery that's happening here that the psalmist is 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 laying on thick for his people. Like he's he's talking about this valley of weeping where the people are weeping and the trees are weeping. It's dry and desolate. It's not the place that you uh, you know pitch your tent and go for a a week long vacation. This is not the place where they long to be. To the original reader, the psalmist invokes a visual of, of a desolate, waterless valley full of weeping trees and weeping people, a season of deep sorrow, even depression. So it's led some scholars to try and place this psalm, like maybe this psalm was, was during the, <clears throat> the Babylonian captivity when they were exiled into another country. They were taken away as slaves and mistreated, and they were longing to return to Jerusalem, where God's presence was. Maybe this psalm was, was sung or written during the time of the divided kingdom, where the northern tribes, uh, where Jeroboam set up a, a, a temple-like model to keep the northern tribes from, from coming. Sorry, Rehoboam was in the north. Jeroboam was in the south. Uh, <clears throat> to keep the people from traveling down to Jerusalem. And, and he prohibited them from going to the temple. Maybe it was written during that time when they were not allowed to travel as commanded in the, in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament law, to Jerusalem and worship God, to gather together. <clears throat> Regardless of the setting of this psalm, the imagery is vivid. Seasons of life. When you're walking through places that you wouldn't choose to be, you're experiencing things that are difficult, sorrowful, in fact, as I pondered this this week, I thought, is this not all of life? Is this not a picture of the journey from, from birth to the grave when we finally get to see him face to face? There's a depiction in this psalm of a struggle a valley that is not full of life. It is dying. It is dry. 
And there's a pilgrimage of people walking through this valley, through this life, on the way to God's complete presence. I was reminded again of John Bunyan. He refers to this as the celestial city across the deep rivers as we're traveling to that place, hope-filled. And so the psalmist reminds the singers, for those whose strength is in the Lord, even in the valley of sorrow or weeping, that even in those moments, they can be seasons, there can be seasons of fruitful worship as God sustains the worshiper in seasons of sorrow from strength to strength. God will hear. God will protect. God will bring his own unto himself. And God even has purpose in these valleys. Notice verse 6. What happens to the dry and desolate land when God's people pass through? The dry and desolate land land becomes as, as as if it was covered by the spring rains. It says that springs of living water fill this desolate land when God's people pass through. Those whose strength is in the Lord Even though they are not where they long to be, their longing is to be in God's presence, they are plodding forward on this journey. They are bringing water to dry land, life to desolate. I'm reminded of something Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Foreshadowing his new covenant people, he said this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' statement ties to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 55, and it's really good, so we're going to read all of it. Jesus rephrases Isaiah's beginning of his prophecy here in 55, where Isaiah preaches and says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord." that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow cover the earth, I come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and shall succeed the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah is prophesying, Jesus is pointing back, and this psalmist is declaring, God is going to do something amazing where dry land becomes fertile soil, and where there once was desolate and death, there is now water and life. And what will accomplish this, according to Isaiah? The word of the Lord. We see the curse in Genesis 3, thorns, toil, dry land. We see that this curse will be reversed. And in John 7, Jesus declares that the day was drawing near where there is only dry land, that God shall bring life out of that dry land. This is the power of the gospel, the good news, that in Christ, God brings dead men to life. From the dry, lifeless valley of weeping, when God's people know God accurately and love God intimately and proclaim God's gospel confidently, not through their own strength, but trusting him completely, springs of living water fill the dry and lifeless valleys. This should excite us. This should stir something inside of us. God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us as his agents to to proclaim that word of life. And he calls us into an intimate and accurate knowledge and trust, which leads us to a full life. So we see in the final section The third blessed life that is exampled here is those who trust in the Lord. We see an accurate understanding by nearness to God leads to a deeper love for God and a greater trust in God. We can trust God through those valleys, those desolate, waterless valleys, because we know who he is, his character and nature. We know that he is trustworthy. And so the psalmist declares again, one day with God is better than endless days apart from God. We can say that, but do do our actions betray that sentiment or do they support it? Do we live our lives like one day with God is what matters most to us? Can we adopt a similar attitude as the psalmist who would prefer a lowly state in the presence of God than an exalted state anywhere else? He would rather be like a sparrow on the cleft of the rock or underneath the altar or a doorkeeper in the outer court just to be near the presence of God. Better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Verse 11, for the Lord God is sun and shield. God is the source of provision. Trusting in God is trusting him for provision and protection. God is both light and shield. Grace and glory are God's, and the good he desires to give to his people are ours. The fullest life is found in placing our trust in God by looking to Christ, not only in our need, but at every moment. But what does, what does it look like to trust in God? Well, I think some examples that we can look to. And when we see examples of saints that have gone before us that have trusted him in difficult situations, that have trusted him in moments of success, saying, God, all of this that I have, is not, it's, it's worthless without you. But we can also look to our own hearts and our own actions. And we can, we can examine ourselves. When something happens that you don't understand, how do you react? Do you first turn to Christ or, or do you first turn to your resources? Do we extend grace to one another? Or do we exert our own opinions? Do we listen charitably? Or do do we primarily seek to be heard? Do we seek to take matters into our own hands, trusting our own means and resources? Or do we hit our knees, humbling ourselves before the Lord and looking to him as we sojourn through these dry and desolate valleys? as well as the high mountaintops? Are we pursuing God, knowing him accurately? These are good questions to ask ourselves. These are good questions to lay before as we spend time in prayer and in God's word. These are good things, desires to ask. Lord, grow in me a desire for you. Grow in me a desire for your word. That I would look to it as life. Not as means to fix my problem, but as the very life itself. These are good desires. These are good things to continually pray for. God, grow in me a a love for your people. These are regular prayers that I pray. And I would encourage you to add these to your prayers as well. Ask God to grow these desires in us, to turn our affections and our attention away from the things of this world and to him. For the original audience, Psalm 84, the only way to obtain this kind of relationship with God was to be an Israelite to be born into Israel, or for non-Israelites, for them to align with God's people, under God's king, joining God's covenant with all the regulations of that covenant. As a foreigner, an outsider, doing so meant rejecting your way of life, rejecting your family, rejecting your customs, rejecting your traditions to align with the God of Israel. This was the only path for the original audience hearing this psalm. 
until God's plan of redemption came to its crescendo in Christ. In Christ, God took on flesh, became a man, the second Adam, so that he may fulfill the purpose of Israel. Christ fulfilled the law of God perfectly as the true Israel, and he alone now is the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man. First question we need to ask ourselves after reading Psalm 84 is, have you come to Christ? Have you trusted in Christ completely for salvation, for life? If you have not come to Christ, I plead with you this morning, look to Jesus to save you from your sin and bring you into right relationship with God. He is the only way of salvation. The Apostle Paul says our right response is to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Paul says in Romans 10, 19, and you will be saved. Trusting Christ means believing he is who he says he is, truly and fully God, truly and fully man, and trusting what he has done. Trusting what he will yet do, but has promised, trusting that all God's words will be fulfilled. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. If you have placed your trust in Christ, I think the next question we ask ourselves is, am I growing? Am I progressing in my faith? The Christian life, as we see in Psalm 84, is a journey, a journey with Low points and high points with times of rejoicing and times of sorrow. But the destination is not a box to check. It's a continual process of humbling ourselves through acknowledging our need for Christ, repenting of sin, drawing near to the Lord in prayer and worship, growing in an accurate knowledge of God through regular Bible reading, continual study, learning and serving together, seeking to know Christ, not for our merit, but for the prize of gaining Christ. Maybe the better way to ask this question is, how are you growing in your faith? Psalm 84 shows us that knowing God accurately leads to loving God intimately and trusting God completely, which produces a full life. So may you see Christ for who he truly is. May you and I continually grow in knowing God accurately, loving God intimately, and trusting God completely. And may our desire to be near him continue to grow every single day. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we come before you. We humble ourselves and we say, God, there is none like you. No one has done what you have done None compares. God, we confess that there are many things in this life that, that strive to capture our attention. 
and hold our affections. God, let us see these things for what they truly are, counterfeits. And some of those things are good, and they're good gifts from you, but they are not the best. Let us rejoice in those good gifts that you give us. But let us look only to you to satisfy. Create in us a deep longing to know you, to be in your presence. God, grow our desire to boast in what you have done to others. Help us to set aside our apathy. Help us to set aside our timidity and fear and help us to engage in bringing water to dry places by proclaiming the gospel. God, send us out to engage in your mission to the glory of your name. Amen.